0: As the ideas for the book were sort of beginning to come into focus, I realized that you couldn't explore this story without exploring Laos. Now, I don't know Laos nearly as well. I don't claim really to be any kind of expert on it, except to the degree that I want to emphasize in the book. I hate personally the term the Vietnam War. I never use it. You know, to me, it was the American war in Southeast Asia is the best description. The Vietnamese don't call it the American, uh, the, the Vietnam War. They call it the American war to distinguish it from the French war and the wars against China. So to me, it's, it's the American war in Southeast Asia. And you can't understand the destruction of Tien and Guangxi provinces without understanding the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos. Okay, my name is George Black. I'm in New York, have been for, gosh, most of my adult life. Grew up in the UK, Uh, born in Scotland, lived in London and Oxford, and uh, yeah, moved here in 1981. And have been covering pages with words of all sorts ever since.
1: Today, we sat down with our very good friend George to get to the bottom of how to address war legacies in Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia, and discuss the makings of his new book that uncovers the lasting legacy of American involvement in the region. George Black, a New York City-based writer, is an expert in international affairs and the environment. With a master's degree from the University of Oxford, he boasts a 35-year career as a journalist, contributing to esteemed publications and receiving numerous awards. He has extensive television experience with BBC B.C. CBC. P.B.S. And NPR. The Long Reckoning comprises three parts, war, peace, and redemption. In the first section, Black presents an efficient military and political history. Readers well-versed in the ample scholarship on the war years might find much of his material familiar, but Black's immersion in a particular human geography, his attunement to aspects of terrain, climate, flora, and fauna, as well as to the people's intimate relationship to the land, brings home the enormity of the discretion anew. The book sets the stage for post-war stories involving Individual and communal suffering, diplomatic maneuvering, and geopolitical complexity.
0: Well, I think even though it took me many years to get there, I spent a lot of my career in Latin America, um, followed by periods working on China and India, uh, Hong Kong, Bangladesh, sort of edging closer to Southeast Asia. Didn't actually get there until 10 years ago, nine years ago. I think really in everything I've written over the years, I've written a lot about human rights issues, environmental issues, issues to do with violence and the consequences of violence. A lot um, that has sort of kept me going professionally really is, is the opportunity to deal with people who are, you know, inspirational figures in dealing with those sets of issues whether it's violence, whether it's human rights abuses, whether it's environmental destruction. I think in, in Vietnam and, and Laos, it it brings all those things together. And like any book, people always say, how long did it take you to write this book? I would say kind of flippantly, 70 years, because I mean, I feel like, well, growing up in the post-war years in Britain, we were still surrounded by a lot of, you know, World War I and World War II stuff. You know, my grandfather was bedridden for his whole life because he'd been gassed in World War One in the trenches. I had an uncle who was just off the charts with PTSD, as we would call it now. We didn't have a name for it. You know, a lot of my neighbourhood in South London in the 60s was still a bombsite, you know, with temporary shelter and uh, piles of rubble. So I think, you know, the idea of the long aftermath of war got implanted in me pretty early, and then I spent a lot of time in the, from the late 70s through the mid-80s in Central America, which was kind of the wave of wars immediately after Vietnam, and raised a lot of the same issues about American conduct of the war, the kind of allies the United States made, the same kind of enemies, you know, communism in the Cold War, and seeing domestic political crises as being nothing but, you know, Soviet communist expansion. So, you know, by the time I got to Vietnam and Laos, there was a lot of accumulated baggage. I started for many reasons to spend a lot of time in one particular area, which was the border area of Khong Tri and Thuatian provinces, and then the adjacent portion of Laos and the demilitarized zone. And sort of got really focused on the idea of why the destruction of the war was so extreme there and got to know a lot of people who worked on various aspects of that post-war legacy and sort of de- began to develop an idea. You've got to have more than characters. You've got to have a setting. You've got to have a narrative framework. You've got to have a thesis and a set of themes. And really, it was to ask why was the destruction so bad in this particular part of Southeast Asia? It was very small. I mean, we're talking about an area, you know, smaller than the state of Connecticut, that got the heaviest bombing, the heaviest, some of the heaviest spraying with defoliants. And then so much of the work since the war has been concentrated on, you know, rectifying the problems in, in that very small area. My original focus was on American veterans who went back. And I particularly got to know one of them who is pretty well known in circles dealing with the legacy of the war in Vietnam, um, a guy called Chuck Searcy, who served in military intelligence in Saigon during the war. And then through him, I got to know also very well another veteran who'd had a very different experience a man called uh, Manus Campbell, who had served with the Marines. And Manus's entire service was in those two provinces I mentioned, and including on a stretch of the Ho Chi Minh Trail right against the Lao border, and then various posts along the DMZ. And Chuck had gone back initially to work on humanitarian aid in the form of prosthetics. Uh, went to Hanoi in 1994. He was probably the first returning veteran to settle permanently in Vietnam. He's been there ever since. And, you know, he was also drawn to this area, not because he'd fought there, but because he decided that, you know, once it was clear to people that once he got past the immediate humanitarian need for prosthetics, you had to say, well, why are so many people walking around with no legs or with artificial You know, wooden stumps or crude metal and rubber devices to walk on. And it was because they were being blown up by unexploded cluster munitions. As the ideas for the book were sort of beginning to come into focus, I realized that you couldn't explore this story without exploring Laos. Now, I don't know Laos nearly as well. I don't claim really to be any kind of expert on it, except to the degree that I want to Emphasize in the book. I hate personally the term the Vietnam War. I never use it. You know, to me, it was the American war in Southeast Asia is the best description. The Vietnamese don't call it the American uh, the the Vietnam War. They call it the American War to distinguish it from the French War and the wars against China. Yeah. You can't understand the destruction of Tuyetian and Quang provinces without understanding the ho chi minh trail in laos which to me was the key to the whole war i mean it's the reason i think that the north won the war that you know the the trail as you know you know was the most heavily bombed area uh massive destruction in laos um and as we discovered in the course of research that i did and work that friends of yours had done, there was also the use of Agent Orange and and other herbicides, defoliants, in Laos. And sort of, you know, over time, as I began to think about that and went to Laos for the first time, I, I said, well, there's a key here to understanding the war in a slightly different way. Because what you had in Vietnam and Laos was actually several theaters of war. And they were all different. And a lot of the explanation of what happened in those border areas has to do with the, what I what I call in one chapter, the war between machines and mountains. Um, very rugged, difficult, inhospitable country. Terrifying for both sides to fight in, but particularly for the US Marines because you know, they could never find the enemy. Most of the combat was in ambushes. The Vietnamese knew the the topography intimately. Every trail, every stream bed, and the Americans were kind of at sea, so they responded with technology. You know, heavy weaponry, artillery, naval bombardments, aerial bombing, um, and herbicides. And that area also was the first entry point of the Ho Chi Minh Trail into the former South Vietnam in this valley called Asho, which was terrifying for American soldiers. They called it the Valley of Death. And it's where, you know, Americans know it because of Hamburger Hill. So that was the stronghold of the North Vietnamese inside South Vietnam. And it was just relentlessly bombed and sprayed for years and years. Um, and then you discover that in fact, you know, the border to the people who live there. And I think as in a lot of wars, the people who suffer most are the indigenous people, they don't even recognize the the border. I mean, the border is a fiction to them that you know, outsiders came in and drew these lines. And if you're a Katu or a or a Paco or a Taoi. Person, you, you know, it's meaningless. You've got families on both sides. You go back and forth. And they really suffered very badly. I wanted to emphasize that theme in the book on both sides of the border, and, and particularly in light of the travels I was able and really privileged to make inside Laos in that border area. The idea of using defoliants goes back to what the British did, actually, in combating a communist insurgency in Malaya after World War II. They used it, they found it very effective in a context that was very, very different from Vietnam and Laos. The Americans liked the idea, developed a particular set of chemicals with two purposes in mind. One was that if your enemy was hiding in the forest, you sprayed the forest, cause the leaves to fall off the trees, expose the enemy, and that meant you could bomb them or shoot them. The second reason, which was much, much more controversial, the first one you could, you know, was always justified by the argument that it was about protecting American lives. Because, as I said earlier, the main mode of combat was the ambush. Something like 80 or 85% of all of the combat in Vietnam was when Americans were ambushed in this hostile territory. So the second part, which was much more controversial, and it was resisted at first by President Kennedy, was to use some of the same chemicals, but also a different set of chemicals to destroy food crops. That was controversial because you were in the name of starving the enemy you were also starving the poor rural population who was growing the crops one of the you know great tragedies of vietnam is the americans never knew how to figure out who was enemy and who was civilian because the two were just so intertwined with each other. The American administrations overcame those initial doubts. They concentrated on the food crops, particularly in the more remote areas, like the Lao border area, where again, the main suffering fell on the ethnic minority people who lived there. The, the irony about it is that the crop destruction missions were very politically counterproductive, because you antagonized the very people you were supposed to be there to help. Then you attach these ridiculous, you, the American government, I mean, attach these ridiculous conditions to make sure it was very humane and so forth, where, you know, if your crops were destroyed, you, as a peasant farmer, could submit a claim form with eight copies to your local <laughs> South Vietnamese government official who usually asked you for a bribe. And you couldn't read or write anyway to fill in the forms to get compensation. So that aspect of it was completely counterproductive. And with very limited exceptions, the defoliation was also not not counterproductive, but totally militarily useless. The one example where it arguably served its purpose is in the far south of Vietnam, in the Mekong Delta, where American boats were patrolling the canals and And tributaries and small rivers in the Mekong, they cleared the riverbanks basically to protect people in boats from ambush, from snipers, from attack. And that, you know, was pretty effective, but it was a very small part of the total chemical usage. A well-known American scientist who did some of the early work on Agent Orange, including during the war, he had an interview at the end of a trip in 1970, and he interviewed the overall commander of American forces in Vietnam. General Abrams, and he asked Abrams what he thought about the defoliation campaign. And forgive my language here, Abrams said, you know what? I think it's shit. It's worthless because Agent Orange took a long time to work. You know, you didn't just spray the trees and all the leaves fell off, especially when you're dealing with dense rainforest, triple canopy. You do a run, some of the leaves on the top fall off. You come back later, you do the next layer. And Abram said, you know, it's like sending the enemy postcard, saying, hello, enemy, we're going to drop some chemicals on you, and it will take a few weeks, but all the leaves will fall off, and then we'll come back and shoot you. Well, <laughs> you're not going to stay there if you have any common sense. So they didn't. So militarily, it was useless. Agent Orange was the majority, um, about 62% of the 20 20 million gallons of herbicides that were used, it was not extremely toxic under normal production conditions because they controlled the heat in the chemical reaction. But when you accelerated that under demand from the Pentagon for more and more and more, the dioxin levels, the content of this extremely toxic substance just went through the roof. And that's the problem. Uh, The problem is what was the effect of of the toxins that went into the soil, the vegetation, the water supply, the food, fish, ducks, chickens, who are all eating off the ground, swimming in the ponds. And that's where the ongoing, you know, 53 years after the 52 years after the last spray planes passed over, That is what continues to blight the lives of people living in the areas that were sprayed.
1: It was a blazing hot morning in October 2019 on the old Ho Chi Minh Trail between Vietnam and Laos. Susan Hammond, Jacqueline Chanyon, and Nipa Pon Sang Tong forded a rocky stream across the trail and came to a village of about the US has never acknowledged. George Black, a seasoned writer specializing in international affairs and the environment, turns a spotlight on the forgotten and tragic legacy of US involvement in Southeast Asia with a keen focus on the use of agent orange in Laos and Vietnam. There is poignant storytelling, Black brings attention to the environmental and human consequences of war, shedding light on a crucial issue that demands urgent action and collective responsibility.
0: The the trip that we did for that story was a nine-day trip down the Ho Chi Minh Trail along the border area, right across from the demilitarized zone and the two provinces Quang um, Tri and Tia in in Vietnam that we were talking about uh, in company with three staffers from an organization you guys know very, very well and with whom, because of the similar names, you're sometimes confused. Um, I wish with hindsight that that article, well, I, I think it had to be narrowly about Agent Orange because it was an investigative story about something that, relatively speaking, was unknown. You know, there was really no awareness, including in the U.S. government today, U.S. government officials, that Agent Orange had been used, and other chemicals, in Laos. And, you know, I wish I had been able to write a story that gave the due credit to both organizations, but there's been... You know, I dealt with the problem of unexploded ordnance in a fair amount of detail in the chapters about Vietnam, and I had to take the decision really that if I was going to do Laos, it had to be the the other part of the two main problems, um Agent Orange. So no disrespect intended there to uh, legacies of war quite the opposite. And I know you have admiration for the work that um uh, the War Legacies Project do, and and vice versa. So that's really important. And everywhere we went, of course, where you see the legacy of Agent Orange, you see bomb craters, the residue of the bombing, much, much more than you do these days in Vietnam. Precisely because there hasn't been the same national or international attention to the problem. You know, a lot of American money has gone into Laos for that problem but uh, I was really shocked, to be honest, uh, at how much the countryside in those ethnic areas was still just pitted with bomb craters everywhere, and you know, cluster bomb casings being used as vegetable planters, and stilts on the rice storage huts, and and fishing boats made out of fighter plane tanks, and household utensils all made out of pieces of crashed aircraft. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a dramatic thing to see. And I wasn't really prepared for, for that. The experience is, you know, very much as in many places I've visited, many families I've visited in Vietnam... You know, the way the War Legacies Project operates is to go into each individual village, call on the headman, the Naban to have him assemble villagers, anyone with a disability come forward. And you see all these little kids. You know, the majority of the cases of disease, birth defects that we know to be presumed to to be the result of exposure to dioxin. You know, to see people in the third generation and there are even cases now in Vietnam, at least in the fourth generation. And most of the cases documented by the War Legacies Project are of kids under 16. Some of the worst cases, of course, you know, and see because the kids died. I mean, they they collected testimonies about villages where five, you know, kids were born without eyes. Um, just horrible, horrible stories. But those who survive, it's not just that their physical ailments are so serious, physical and mental ailments. But that, you know, these are the poorest of the poor. And if you, one thing I think is really interesting is is the science of mapping. If you look at the World Bank maps of poverty in Laos, and you look at the spray line maps of Agent Orange, and the bombing maps, they're the same. They just overlay completely. So, you know, they're living with consequences that aren't just medical, but they're about resources. They're about access to help from the outside, attention from the government. And, uh, I, you know, I always, I've worked in a lot of different countries and very often with situations involving ethnic communities in the American West, in the Andean countries, in South America, uh, in Guatemala, it's always the ethnic people who suffer worst and who get the least aid and publicity and attention. So, you know, the, the the pleasing thing that came from that article, and I take very, very little credit for this. That, as you say, it was a report about the War Legacies Project and what they were doing. They were the ones who collected most of the data. I did some additional research. But, you know, this is their story. And what was great is that the New York Times Magazine has enough... Influence in the world compared to a small NGO, that the story resulted directly in the first allocation of American government aid, humanitarian aid, to people with agent orange-related disabilities in, in Laos. That was incredibly important to me. It was a great sense of satisfaction and an incredible tribute to the to the work of the World Exes Project. It's not enough. It's a little bit, but it's it's at least an acknowledgement. I would say that what you and your colleagues' at legacies of war are doing is important for many reasons, one of which is that you speak to the diaspora community. You are of a younger generation. I think one of the biggest challenges with Vietnam is that the generation of people who took the lead on these issues is getting older. I mean, the veterans now are all into their 70s, or well into their 70s in many cases. You know, they're not going to be around forever. The politician who has done most to get humanitarian aid to war legacies issues in Vietnam and Laos, Senator Patrick Leahy, who retired this year at the age of 82, and there is a very serious concern, you know, who picks up the baton in the US Senate, in the US House of Representatives. You can't go forward if Leahy turns out to be a replaceable because somebody has to, you know, the rubber has to hit the road when the checkbook comes out. And only the US can marshal resources, you know, on the scale that is necessary to deal with these problems. There's a generational problem of activism. You know, my son who sort of reminds me of myself in some ways at the same age, He just came back from over a year in ukraine he's 33 34 you know he's been delivering humanitarian aid supplies if you're someone of that generation american 45 50 years ago 55 years ago you'd have focused on what can i do in vietnam and now it's what can i do in ukraine what can i do about climate change and that's a challenge a generational challenge so your generation and also a generation i would say of american veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, they have their own serious issues to deal with, but they can also act as a sort of a transitional voice to bring into this. You know, working with older generation um, veterans of the war in Vietnam and Laos. So it's not easy, and and the scale. I think I think the first thing you have to convince people of is simply that these legacies are still a present-day reality. And I think that's hard for people to get their minds around. You know, it's like people say, oh, this was 50 years ago. What's it got to do with now? And what it has to do with now is is the ongoing human cost. Documenting that cost, publicizing that cost, showing pictures of kids particularly, not because it's kind of a cheap thing to do. You can show people... Pictures because it tugs at the heartstrings, but it's also the message. This is for kids now, you know. This is a six-year-old who can't walk, and that's because of what happened to her parents' village or her grandparents' village, you know, fifty years ago, sixty years ago. You know, so it needs a lot of creativity on the part of groups like yours, the War Legacy Project, uh, human rights organisations, you know, mine action groups who work on the continued problem of UXO removal. You know, people are still, again, going back to my travels in, in Laos, down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you know, don't stray off the path. As 20, well, that was 2019 we were there, but still today, you know, the vast majority of that stuff is still lying around, blowing people's legs off, killing them. Ukrainian farmers planting and harvesting their crops are being blown up by landmines and UXO. And, you know, I think the Biden administration, I do believe they agonized over this one. I believe that much. And the argument, of course, is, well, you know, the Russians have been using them massively and indiscriminately, and theirs have a much higher failure rate, all of which is true. But then once you get into what has always been the the American argument for not signing legislation, not having an international landmines treaty, which Senator Leahy fought hard for and regards as his greatest disappointment. The argument was always, we have to reserve the right to use them when strictly necessary in battlefield situations. You open that door a crack, you've opened the door. And I think it's tragic. I sort of understand the rationale in that the Ukrainians are outgunned. They're running out of ammunition. But I still think, as a question of the moral balance, it's a bad call. It's a hard argument. It's a hard argument in the case of Ukraine. And it is different from you know, the massive, absolutely indiscriminate use of cluster bombs in Southeast Asia. But I think you have to draw that line. I grew up in in the UK, as I said, in the 60s. But Vietnam was a very big deal for us in the UK, partly because there was a lot of public advocacy about keeping Britain out of the war. Because Lyndon Johnson pushed very, very hard on the British to join in, and the government of the day, to its credit, refused. So, you know, I mean, I was just immersed in in a lot of anger and, and hostility to this war from my teenage years. You know, went on the big demonstrations in London in 1968 after the Tet Offensive. But I found that what I, what I managed, probably the biggest dramatic shift was as I got to know veterans uh, and made this separation that the Vietnamese make very clearly, you know, between those who fight in a war, who were conscripts for the most part. And the cause of the government they were fighting for through no choice of their own, they went through horrific suffering. Um, They were brave. Some of them had horrible politics. Some of them had very enlightened politics. You know, I know extremely conservative evangelical veterans who have done incredible work in places like the Astro Valley, you know, building clinics and, and providing bicycles for you know, Katu and Pako children to get to school. And and these issues should not be political. They really shouldn't. Um, I know plenty of other veterans who were, you know, radical anti-war activists in the 60s. But, you know, that separation is absolutely critical. And for all that the Reagan administration used to talk about Vietnam as a noble cause, you know, they treated the veterans shockingly. So my admiration for soldiers and what they go through, um, that was a big sort of mental shift for me and education. I think like most people, you know, i would read a lot on Vietnam, probably more than the average over the years, but I had this idea I think everyone has, which is this was, you know, the key to winning the war was Ho Chi Minh. And as I got more and more involved in this particular area of Vietnam, it led me really to this whole other idea of who the the enemy was. And by the time the worst destruction occurred, Ho Chi Minh was long out of power. Ho Chi Minh wasn't running things. You know, the the legendary General Zap, who, you know, led the military defeat of the French at Dien Bien Phu, he was also out of favor, you know, shunted aside by very hardline leaders. And I argue in the book, and this is one reason it will never be published in Vietnam; it won't get past the censors, because it emphasizes that one part of the reason for the extreme destruction of this particular area was the military strategies adopted by the hardline leadership uh, of the Politburo in Hanoi. And the irony is, you know, the, the number one leader, Le Zuan, who I don't mince words about in the book. He was a Stalinist. He was a thoroughly unpleasant man. Um, and he advocated these huge mass defensives against an enemy who was infinitely more powerful in, in how it could just wipe them out and, you know, sacrificed a lot of, not, not just human lives, but his own home province was Quangtree. He came from Dongha, which is the town in kwangtri which is now the center of all of the demining unexploded ordnance um programs, including the one that Chuck Cersei is involved in, um, including the Mines Action Group. I mean, you know, it's 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 the epicenter of unexploded ordnance removal. And the town of Dongha was wiped off the map, you know, by B-52s because of the, you know, a response the Americans had to the strategies of Les So, you know, I don't absolve um, the North Vietnamese from a share, not, you know, it's, it was their country, it was their fight, it was their independence. I have never wavered on those principles. But I think it's important for Americans to sort of you know get past the the myths the kind of received wisdom if you if you ask most people they've never heard of this one and it's only really in academic writing since scholars have been able to get access to the vietnamese archives that were closed that i think that story is now being told in academic circles but it hasn't reached the you know the popular books and articles so i thought that was maybe one contribution my book could make, because it was a great surprise to me, and I think it is to others. So those, I would say, are the two main changes in in my view of things. When I first talked to my agent, we talked about a book about returning American veterans. And Chuck and Manus are very compelling characters to me. They they tell two different veterans' stories. They sort of did almost like the two sides of the coin. Chuck analyzed the war and Manus fought the war. You know, Chuck produced a handbook for military intelligence about how to avoid Viet Cong ambushes. Manus Campbell walked into them and, you know, got overrun by North Vietnamese troops in exactly the ambushes that Chuck was describing. But it wasn't, in itself, I didn't feel enough. So as I got to know more of their work, it was impossible to talk to them about what they were doing without all these other partnerships they had formed. And a lot of those partnerships really reflected how the issues, you know, direct humanitarian aid to the disabled, removing unexploded ordnance, dealing with the long term legacy of Agent Orange, they were all intertwined you know, because just because of the conduct of the military operations. The fighter planes came in and laid down cluster bombs to clear the path of the spray planes, which came in and dropped the chemicals. The cluster bombs continue to blow people up, the chemicals continue to poison. So it's all all wrapped up together and you had different actors, characters in this sort of informal group. I think of it as a Venn diagram, you know they overlap and they they coincide at the center and i would say the center is chuck Searcy and this extraordinary woman lady borton who was a humanitarian aid worker with the american friends service committee in Ngai province um just south of cong tri and antientien she was there from 1969 to 1971 working on a human humanitarian aid program for people with disabilities who were being brought into the clinic with their legs blown off, and again, mainly kids. So she represented that tradition. She probably has spent more time consistently in Vietnam, and I would argue knows more about Vietnam than any other living American at this point. Lived in Hanoi for decades, has worked very closely with Chuck. So you've got the humanitarian side, the health concerns, the disabilities, but then you have to get to the root of the problem with Agent Orange, which is the science, you know, how it works and how you can deal with the after effects of it. You know, to give the benefit of the doubt, to some extent, to those who didn't know how to deal with the problem, people thought it was everywhere. So how did you get a handle on it? One-sixth of the land territory of South Vietnam had been sprayed. There were hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities. How did you start to deal with that? And what it took was scientific investigation. What these people, including now this other group that I discuss, scientists, Canadian, as well as American, um, one of whom, Tom Boisvin, who features heavily in the book, uh, works closely with uh, the War Legacies Project. You know him, he works a lot in Laos. He's now been working in Cambodia. All of these people came in asking the same questions. They didn't come in and say, here's what you need. Here's what we're going to give you. They came in and they said, what do you need? How can we help? And that to me is like the fundamental thing that sets them apart. You know, Vietnamese were sick of people coming in telling them what to do. You know, that's been their whole history telling them what to do and then bombing the crap out of them, excuse my language, if they don't do it. And, and these people came in with skills, but with also modesty and deference. You tell us what you need, we can try to help provide it. And that process of collaboration took these, these Canadian scientists to, again, this place that comes back time and time and time again in my book, the Valley of Death, the Ashall Valley the stronghold of north vietnam on the lao border and they did a survey there which said we can actually show that this problem is manageable you know the chemicals in the forests and the fields they're gone you know they've dissipated just through natural processes of time where the problem is is in the food chain and here's how it works and they took samples from fish and ducks they they took blood samples, and the saddest thing of all is they took breast milk samples. And they showed that, in fact, the only way for the human body to get rid of dioxin is through breast milk. So mothers continue to feed it to their children. That, that's the problem. So what Hatfield did was to create the understanding that you could deal with this because not only could you show how it worked and which populations were especially vulnerable and where the disabilities were most likely to be directly associated with Agent Orange. They also found that the worst contamination was right around the site of a former American military base in the Ashaw Valley, a special forces base where the chemicals had been stored and sprayed and used. So that shifted the attention to cleaning up the bases and going for humanitarian aid programs that could be targeted so you weren't just trying to get your arms around the whole country um it's still not enough the aid is going now to eight provinces there were 44 i think in the former south vietnam um it's now going for the first time in small amounts to laos and it's actually i mean one thing that's really important to say is that once the american government finally agreed to deal with the problem. And that was not until 2006. It's incredible, 31 years after the war. It was much easier to get a lot of money to clean up the big air bases that were used by the spray flights. Much more difficult, much more controversial to get money for the disabled, much less money. So that's an ongoing struggle. Um, By the time the two biggest air bases are cleaned up, It'll probably be at the earliest 2030, 2031. The cost may well rise close to a billion dollars. Uh, we're still, I don't believe, at quite a hundred thousand for disabilities. We may be approaching that. So again, it goes back to the earlier question about, you know, what needs most to be done. It is always reinforcing the idea of the current humanitarian medical needs. it doesn't take much. I, I mean, I'll go back to your earlier question about the things that most surprised me in writing this book. Another of them was, you know, people's lives can be transformed by almost no money in Vietnam or, or in Laos. You know, you buy a family, a brood cow to create calves and give milk. And you sell the calves at the market. Costs about eight hundred dollars, thousand dollars maybe. You give that to a family, where aging parents are dealing with bedridden kids, it can transform their lives because the parents can't work, the kids can't work. You know, thousand dollars builds you an inside toilet for a kid who's been, you know, staggering out into the into the bushes for his whole life. So I think reinforcing to people the idea this really is not like this huge drain on the American pocketbook, you know, to give a little money. At the most general level, there is a sort of inbuilt hostility or skepticism among Americans about foreign aid. It's shown in one poll after another after another for years that people have a grotesquely inflated idea of how much money goes out in foreign aid. It's way, I can't remember the percentages offhand. The people will normally say things like 10%. And I think the reality is it's closer to 1%. Uh, you may correct me, my, my figures may be wrong, but it's radically less than people think and and much less than most European countries get. So that's one thing. Um, a second thing is getting money through Congress requires a really sharp understanding of how the process works. It's very bureaucratic. You know, this this money goes into a huge annual spending bill. And Senator Patrick Leahy's chief aide, veteran aide, who also just well, he's supposed to have retired in January along with the senator. He's actually putting in a, a year as a consultant, really, to uh Senator Leahy's replacement, Senator Welch in Vermont. But you know, he's a master of this arcane process of turning policy into dollars. And it's, you know, it's head breaking work to get this through the right congressional committees at the right time, balance it with a million other items in the budget. And then the third thing I would say is that there is still to this day deeply rooted resistance by government lawyers to language that implies liability. The language for the money appropriated for what everyone knows what it's for is for the victims of Agent Orange. You can't frame the law that that way. It has to be you know, there's a whole long sentence that was very elaborately crafted by this aide, Tim Reeser, working with the main funder of the scientific research, a man called Charles Bailey, uh, who headed the Ford Foundation office in Hanoi and is another of the characters in my book. You know, they crafted this language that says the aid is for people with severe physical or mental disabilities in areas heavily sprayed by Agent Orange or otherwise contaminated by dioxin. And the State Department lawyers continue to insist on the phrase, regardless of cause. So it's like there's a lot of nudge, nudge, wink, wink about that, but it's still just this terror of admitting liability. And that's what blocked any discussion of Agent Orange for decades. You know, it drives me nuts in a way to look back at that period because the Vietnamese scientists who were studying this were being written off as propagandists and extortionists and liars. And these were like major league, world-class scientists. You know, the leading scientists who worked on Agent Issue in Vietnam from 1969, 1970 on. He was a world-famous liver surgeon. He was publishing scholarly articles during the war in The Lancet, the great British medical journal, you know, up there with the New England Journal of Medicine. And he's being talked about as if he's some kid in a high school chemistry class. That really makes me angry still. And so for years, it was you know Agent Orange's code word for corporate liability or reparations or blackmail to get money, you know, old habits, they die hard. My legacy? I suppose that, you know, maybe I did a little to to try and amplify the voices of people who deserve more, Attention for the work they've done. I mean, it's like what I said about the New York Times Magazine on, on last. You know, yeah, the, it's nice that the New York Times Magazine has the power to change public policy, but the article isn't the point. The article is the work. That, I mean, the point is the the work that is described in the article. And I think, you know, I, I worked for many, many years in uh, international human rights organizations, I spent a lot of time as a journalist in, in Latin America. You know, I wrote a book about the Chinese democracy movement after Tiananmen Square. And I think the common thread that runs through all of that is, you know, a desire to sort of bring to the surface and amplify the voices of, you know, be they humanitarians, be they democracy activists, be they scientists, be they religious workers, whatever, they're different in every situation. But, you know, if you look at the bookshelf, I'd like people to say, well, there's some stuff in there about people who are, you know, there's that famous quote by Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, you know, never doubt that a small number of, what's the phrase, dedicated, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I mean, I don't believe that the people in my books change the world, but I think they make the world a hell of a more generous and and decent place. And they need to be honored. So, you know, one tries to do that, I guess, is the is the hope I would have.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Thipcow Talk Podcast. To learn more about what you heard today and how you can get more involved in this work, visit legaciesofwar.org. You'll find free educational programs like our Legacies Library, Steps to Connect with Your U.S. Representatives, stories from diaspora veterans and so much more this year we are celebrating 20 years of history healing and hope we invite you to join in on the celebrations with us follow along on your favorite social media platform and sign up for our newsletter for the latest from legacies of war